century, Vienna was Europe, the fertile, edgy, self-deluding hub of a culture and a civilization on the threshold of apocalypse. Between the wars, reduced from a glorious imperial metropole to the impoverished, shrunken capital of a tiny rump state, Vienna slid steadily from grace, finishing up as the provincial outpost of a Nazi empire to which most of its citizens swore enthusiastic fealty. After Germany was defeated, Austria fell into the Western camp and was assigned the status of Hitler's first victim. This stroke of doubly unmerited good fortune authorized Vienna to exercise its past. Its Nazi allegiance conveniently forgotten, the Austrian capital, a Western city surrounded by Soviet Eastern Europe, acquired a new identity as outrider and exemplar of the free world. To its former subjects, now trapped in Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary, Romania, and Yugoslavia, Vienna stood for Central Europe, an imagined community of cosmopolitan civility that Europeans had somehow mislaid in the course of the century. In communism's dying years, the city was to become a sort of listening post of liberty, a rejuvenated site of encounters and departures for Eastern Europeans escaping west and Westerners building bridges to the east. Vienna, in 1989, was thus a good place from which to think Europe. Austria embodied all the slightly self-satisfied attributes of post-war Western Europe. Capitalist prosperity underpinned by a richly endowed welfare state. Social peace guaranteed, thanks to jobs and perks liberally distributed through all the main social groups and political parties. External security assured by the implicit protection of the Western nuclear umbrella, while Austria itself remained smugly neutral. Meanwhile, across the Leiter and Danube rivers just a few kilometres to the east, there lay the other Europe of bleak poverty and secret policemen. The distance separating the two was nicely encapsulated in the contrast between Vienna's thrusting, energetic Westbahnhof, whence businessmen and vacationers boarded sleek modern expresses for Munich or Zurich or Paris, and the city's grim, uninviting Sudbahnhof, a shabby, dingy, faintly menacing hangout of penurious foreigners descending filthy old trains from Budapest or Belgrade. Just as the city's two principal railway stations involuntarily acknowledged the geographical schism of Europe, one facing optimistically profitably west, the other negligently conceding Vienna's eastern vocation, so the very streets of the Austrian capital bore witness to the chasm of silence separating Europe's tranquil present from its discomforting past. The imposing, confident buildings lining the great Ringstrasse were a reminder of Vienna's one-time imperial vocation, though the ring itself seemed somehow too big and too grand to serve as a mere quotidian artery for commuters in a medium-sized European capital, and the city was justifiably proud of its public edifices and civic spaces. Indeed, Vienna was much given to invoking older glories, but concerning the more recent past it was decidedly reticent. And of the Jews who had once occupied many of the inner city's buildings, and who contributed decisively to the art, music, theatre, literature, journalism, and ideas that were Vienna in its heyday, the city was most reticent of all. The very violence with which the Jews of Vienna had been expelled from their homes, shipped east from the city, and stamped out of its memory, helped account for the guilty calm of Vienna's present. 
post-war Vienna, like post-war Western Europe, was an imposing edifice resting atop an unspeakable past. Much of the worst of that past had taken place in the lands that fell under Soviet control, which was why it was so easily forgotten in the West or suppressed in the East. With the return of Eastern Europe, the past would be no less unspeakable, but now it would unavoidably have to be spoken. After 1989, nothing, not the future, not the present, and above all, not the past, would ever be the same. Although it was in December 1989 that I decided to undertake a history of post-war Europe, the book did not get written for many years to come. Circumstances intervened. In retrospect, this was fortunate. Many things which have become a little clearer today were still obscure back then. Archives have opened. The inevitable confusions attendant upon a revolutionary transformation have sorted...